1 Samuel chapter 18 is where we want to start this morning. 1 Samuel 18. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one on the back of the seat in front of you. We're going to be on page 204, page 204 to begin this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 18. And we're going to be continuing in our ongoing study in the life of the great man of God, David. You know, recently Time Magazine published a list of the 100 greatest movies of all time. And as in every such list, the movie Citizen Kane was in the top five. Usually it's number one. Citizen Kane, a 1941 movie, was written by Orson Welles. It starred Orson Welles. Orson Welles played Charles Foster Kane, a, uh, who as a little boy was ousted from his happy home by a mother with unbelievable ambition for him. And Cain absorbed that spirit of his mother and became a man of unbridled ambition himself. From building a journalistic empire to running for governor, to promoting his wife's singing career, to constructing his own personal palace called Xanadu, Charles Foster Cain conducted himself like a man possessed, like a, like a bulldozer in a cornfield. But by the end of his life, he had succeeded in destroying everything in life that ever mattered to him. He had succeeded in, in alienating from him every person that he had ever been close to. And the movie ends tragically with Charles Foster Kane alone on his deathbed, whispering the word, Rosebud. Rosebud was his little sled that he was playing with out in the snow the day his mother came to him and said, you've got to get out of here to go pursue your life of ambition. And it was the last word that he longingly spoke. And as I think about the movie, at least the message that I get out of the movie is this, that selfish ambition and pursuing selfish ambition is not the pathway to a happy, fulfilling life. Now, today we want to look at a guy in the Bible who had this same kind of driving ambition, a guy named Abner. And we want to let his example serve as a, a platform on which God can talk to you and me about this issue, the issue of ambition and how to manage it so it doesn't destroy us. Now, we met Abner for the first time last week. If you remember, he had set up a rival kingdom with Saul, using Saul's last surviving son, a fellow named Ishbosheth. But what do we really know about this guy? Let's go back a little bit and find out what we really know about this man and his character. Uh, the Bible tells us, 1 Samuel 14, that uh, Abner was Saul's cousin and that he had worked his way up to being commanding general of the army by the time David showed up to fight Goliath. Well, you know, David beat Goliath. And right here in chapter 18, we find out that it doesn't stop there with David. Look at chapter 18, verse 5. And whatever Saul sent David to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. And this pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. You think it pleased Abner? I don't think so. Skip down, if you would, to verse 13. So Saul sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. And in everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. Skip over to verse 30, the last verse in the chapter. And the Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle. And as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers. And his name became well known. Now, I, I would like to suggest that we need to read between the lines just a little bit here in this section of the Bible. 
Did it ever occur to you, did it ever seem strange to you, that after David killed Goliath, and right here in the beginning of chapter 18, David, Saul loves David. Saul thinks David's the greatest thing since sliced matzah. He just is in love with this guy. And did it ever, did it ever strike you strange that almost overnight his attitude towards David changed so that he was trying to kill him and pursuing him for the next seven years trying to take his life? I mean, what would cause a man's attitude to go south that quickly about someone else? I would like to suggest to you that it was not a coincidence or an accident, but that Abner had a lot to do with this. That Abner, being the ambitious man that he was, saw David as an incredible threat to him, an incredible threat to his position as commander-in-chief of the army. And I would like to suggest to you that Abner began a deliberate campaign to poison the well and to undermine David in Saul's eyes. You say, wait a minute, Lon, wait a minute. I mean, how do you know for sure that's true? I mean, you don't know that. You're just guessing. You don't, you don't have any proof of that. Well, that's true. I am guessing a little. But I do have a tiny bit of proof, that I, and I think I'm right. Do you remember in 1 Samuel 26 when David sneaks into Saul's camp? And he gets so close to the king that he actually takes his spear and his water jug that were sitting right by his head as proof that he had gotten right up to the point where he was standing right by the king. You remember that? Well, now, if you read the rest of the story, you'll find what happened is that David then went away to a safe distance and he began to taunt somebody about the fact he had gotten that close to the king. Guess who he begins to taunt? It's Abner. That's right. Read it. He screams out, hey, Abner, look what I got. Some general you are. Some secret service agent you are. Some protector you are. You let me get right up to the point where I could have killed the king if I wanted to. They ought to kill you instead. Read it. David says it. I think there was just a tiny bit of tension between these men. And the reason there was, I believe, is because Abner was poisoning the well. His ambition was so great, he was not going to let David or anybody else take what he had gotten away from him. Now, it doesn't stop there. We've already seen that after Saul dies, Abner's personal ambition remains a driving force in his life. He refuses to support David as the next king, and the reason for that is he knows if David becomes king, he's not going to keep his position. Joab already had a general, a fellow named Joab, a pretty ruthless guy, and Abner knew he wasn't going to be commander-in-chief anymore. And so instead, he goes and sets up this rival kingdom under a puppet, under Ishbosheth, as Milton had... Um, had uh, Satan say in Paradise Lost, I would rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. And Abner would rather rule in a rival kingdom than serve in David's kingdom. But you know, it doesn't even stop there. Turn over, if you would, we to 2 Samuel chapter 3. This is where we left off last week. 2 Samuel chapter 3. Here we found that his ambition was so great that Abner wasn't even willing to keep serving under this puppet ruler Ishbosheth. He had plans to take over. He had plans to get rid of Ishbosheth and become king himself. Look at verse 6, chapter 3, verse 6. During the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. He was planning to take over. And only because Ishbosheth summoned up some courage and confronted him and said, You're not going to do it, did he stop. Now that's where we left off. And I want you to stop. To, to, I want us to pick up and let's see what Abner does now. He's too ambitious a man to stop, so what does he do? Verse 12. 
Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to say to David, Whose land is this anyway? Make an agreement with me, and I will help you bring all Israel over to you. I'll get all of Ishbosheth's followers, and I'll get them all coming to you. And David said, Good, I will make an agreement with you. Abner decides, well, if I can't take over as the king under Ishbosheth, I'll just go over to David and I'll cut a deal with him. And so he went over to David and he cuts a deal with David. And then David says, all right, let's do it. So then Abner begins going to Ishbosheth's supporters and saying, we need to switch to David. Look at verse 17. Abner conferred with the elders of Israel who were following Ishbosheth and said, for some time you have wanted to make David your king. I know that. Now let's do it. Come on, I'll go with you. We're going to all desert and we're going to all go AWOL and we're all switching over to David. Come on, I'll be your leader. Now you can be sure that Abner had negotiated something big for himself in this deal. I mean, when David took over in Jerusalem, you can be sure Abner was going to be Secretary of State or Secretary of Defense or Secretary of something, because he wouldn't have done this otherwise. This man had too much ambition to do anything if there wasn't something in it for him. He said, but Lon... This is reprehensible what he's doing here. This is deplorable what he's doing. I mean, he sets Ishbosheth up as a puppet and then he comes behind him and treacherously betrays him like this. This is terrible. You're right. It is. But it's totally in character for Abner. I mean, Abner, Abner worshipped the only God he knew, and that was the God of personal ambition. He held no relationships sacred. Every relationship was expendable in his life to get where he wanted to go. He was like the Charles Foster Kane of the Old Testament. Now, everything was going along, let's finish this out, everything was going along like gravy for Abner. There's only one person he forgot about, and that was Joab, David's general. Look what happens. Verse 22, chapter 3. It says, and just then David's men and Joab returned from a raid. And they found out what had been going on. They found out that David had sent Abner away in peace. Verse 23. And when Joab and all the soldiers arrived, they were told that Abner had come to the king and the king had cut a deal with him. Verse 24. So Joab went to the king and said, what have you done? Are you completely out of your mind? Are you crazy? Are you nuts? You're making a deal with Abner? You're throwing in with Abner? You're hooking up with Abner? Don't you know who this guy is? He goes on to say to him, look. He goes, look, Abner came to you. Why didn't you kill him? You know, verse 25, Abner. You know who he is. He came to deceive you. He came to spy out your movements. I don't know what he came to do, but I can tell you one thing, king. This guy can't be trusted. He wasn't loyal to Ishbosheth, and he won't be loyal to you. He's going to you out the minute he gets a better offer? What are you doing? Bible doesn't tell us what David answered him, but whatever David answered Joab, I can tell you this, it wasn't satisfactory. Look what happens. Verse 26. And then Joab left David and sent messengers after Abner. And they brought Abner back. But David did not know this was going on. Now, when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the gateway as though he were going to speak to him privately. He put his arm around him and he goes, Hey, Abner, old buddy, old pal, old friend, I haven't seen you in such a long time. I hear we're buddies now. I hear we're partners now. I hear we're allies now. Let's go have a cup of tea and talk about old times. Abner's like, Sure, yeah, whatever. And while he did this, look what it says at the end of verse 27. 
and that when he did this, Joab stabbed him in the stomach and he died. Joab murdered him right there on the spot. You say, well, Lon, this is a pretty sad ending. Yeah, it is. You say, well, how did this happen? What, what, what was it that ended up killing Abner? It wasn't Joab. Joab didn't kill Abner, really. Abner's own ambition killed him. If he'd have been a man of less selfish ambition, the man would never have ended up in this position and he never would have died. It was his own ambition that ran him into Joab's sword. Now, that's the end of our passage, but we need to stop here and ask the most important question. And you got limbered up last week, so you ought to be loose today, all right? You know the question. What is the question? So what? So what? That's right. Lon, I don't care about Abner. I don't even like Abner. You know, I don't even want to know. I mean, it makes no difference to me. Uh, so what, what, you know, when I go out tomorrow morning to live in my world, what difference does this make? Well, you may not like Abner. You may not even know anybody named Abner. But... Ambition lives in our world today. The same kind of ambition that Abner had lives out there every day in Washington, D.C. We need to talk about it and how God wants our ambition to be run and to be managed. Now, I looked up the word ambition in the dictionary. Here's what it said. It said, ambition is a driving desire, a passionate desire for fame, honor, high position or power. And let's think of some of the people that we know down through history who were characterized by this kind of driving, passionate ambition. Julius Caesar, Hannibal, uh, uh, Alexander the Great, Napoleon, Stalin, Hitler, uh, Macbeth, uh, J.R. Ewing, all the people that you know in life. Now, Washington, D.C. is full of people like this. You know people like this everywhere you go because Washington, D.C., when it comes to personal ambition, Washington, D.C. is Mecca. People with personal ambition make their pilgrimages here and they never leave. You know this town. Now, what is it about these people that they all have in common? I was thinking this week, what do all these people we've named have in common? Three quick things. Number one... Enough is never enough. Did you, do you notice that about these people? Enough is never enough. They never get to the place where they say, well, I've got this much fame, this much power, this much money, this much whatever. It's time to stop and be comfortable. They never do that. Enough is never enough because selfish ambition always wants more. Number two, I notice about all these people that every one of them treated people like dirt. Other people like dirt. Uh, Donald Trump. There's another name we could throw into that big list. Yeah, I read in his autobiography about that when he was trying to build the Trump Towers in Manhattan, there were a bunch of neighbors that were objecting to this. And so he met with them, and when he walked out of the meeting, he said, and I quote, what they think doesn't matter. They have no power. Just, they don't, they don't count. You see, friends, selfish ambition is like this. It knows no God but itself. It has no respect for anything but itself. It doesn't value anybody or anything, and it treats people like dirt. And the third thing I notice about every one of these people is that every one of them self-destructed. Did you notice that? They're all self-destructed. Uh, many of you have read the Odyssey, you know, by Homer. I had to read that in that cursed thing called uh, high school English. Uh, I mean, high school English is the most cursed thing that I, I think I ever experienced in my young life. And I think the way high school English works is that, that they had to read all this stuff when they were growing up. And so they're going to make you do it now because they're going to get you. And so then we grow up and we make the next generation do it. That's how high school English works. Beowulf. That, is that the dumbest thing you ever read in your whole life? I still don't know what it's talking about. And I'm 50 years old and can't figure it out. Thank God for Cliff Notes. That's all I got to say. All right. 
Now, I know I'm going to get letters, but that's all right. I'm just telling you how I feel. I'm going to get notes, but it'll be fine. Now, I had to read the Odyssey as part of high school English. And you know the story. Odysseus is trying to find his way back home. And he goes by this one island called where the sirens live. And you remember the sirens sing this song that's so irresistible that no sailor can resist it. The deal is, though, there's rocks all around this island. And when you steer your ship towards the song that you can't resist, you run into the rocks and your boat sinks. And so, remember Odysseus, he put wax in the ears of all of his sailors so they couldn't hear the sound. And then he had them tie him to the mast of the ship and they got by safely. Well, I got to thinking this week, selfish ambition is just like this. It lures us into the rocks. It's so enticing. But man, there are rocks all around it. And it lures us into the rocks and our boat sinks. Every one of these people self-destructive. Now, friends, God has a better plan than that for us. And so I want to take the little bit of time I have left and talk to you about how God wants us to handle ambition in our lives so these things don't happen to us. The first thing God says in the Bible about ambition is that there ought to be an eternal component to your ambition, meaning all of your ambition should not be centered on this world. I love what Colonel Sanders of Kentucky Fried Chicken fame said. He said, what good is it if you're the richest person in the cemetery? What good is it? And that's what God wants us to understand. When it comes to ambition, we need to have ambition that's transcendent, that's eternal, that goes beyond this world, an ambition to get to heaven, an ambition to get eternal life, an ambition to be right with God and have a relationship with God. And if you're here this morning and you don't have those things, God is begging you not to let all of your ambition be focused on this world. What good is it if you end up the richest person in the cemetery? How do you get those things? How do you satisfy eternal ambition? You get them through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You get heaven and eternal life by trusting what Jesus did for you on the cross. And if you're here and you've never done that, I hope you'll think about this. For goodness sake, don't let your ambition be limited to this world. But for those of us who've trusted Christ and we're Christians now, what about us? What about now in this world? What about our ambition? Well, let's first answer the question, is ambition wrong? Is ambition evil? Is it wrong to have some goals in life? Is it wrong to focus our energies on getting those goals accomplished? Is it wrong to work hard to achieve our goals? Is that wrong? The answer is no. As a matter of fact, living like that, setting goals and working hard to achieve them is actually part of a biblical lifestyle. Proverbs chapter 6. In Proverbs chapter 6, God calls us to study ants and to be like ants. Now, I don't know if you ever studied ants, you ever watched ants. When I was a little kid, I used to sit and watch ants for hours outside. That's true. I'd watch them and play with them. And I, one thing about an ant, ants are incredibly focused little creatures. I mean, they are doing what they are doing, what they are doing, what they are doing. And to see if you cannot stop an ant without killing it from doing what it is determined to do. You can pick it up and move it a block away. You can flick it. I've done all these things. You can pour dirt on it. You can do anything you want to an ant. You are not going to talk an ant out of doing what that ant believes it's supposed to do. God says, Proverbs 6, as people, we need to study ants and be like them. God wants us to have goals and work towards them. Listen to the Apostle Paul. He said, want to talk about a guy with some ambition? Listen, Romans chapter 15, verse 20. He says, it has always been my ambition, Paul says, 
to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so I would not be building on someone else's foundation. And that's why I haven't been able to come to you in Rome yet. I've been in the eastern end of the Roman Empire doing exactly that. But now, he says, there is no more place over here for me to work. Every place has heard about Christ. Can you imagine that? That this man did that? So he said, now I'm on my way to the western end of the Roman Empire, to Spain, and on the way there I'll stop by and see you. Hey, nobody could ever accuse the Apostle Paul of not having some ambition. This guy was an ambition machine. So is ambition evil? No. Is ambition wrong? No. It can be very constructive, but... Ambition can also be very destructive. When it becomes self-centered, self-directed, unholy, it can become very destructive. So here's the question we want to answer. How as Christians do we manage our ambition so that it stays holy instead of unholy, constructive instead of destructive? What constraints do we put around our ambition so that we don't self-destruct because of it, like Abner did? I've got three constraints to suggest to you. Number one. Constructive ambition has standards that it won't violate. That's a constraint. It has moral standards and ethical standards that it won't violate. And even though by violating these, we could accomplish what it is we want to accomplish a lot easier, godly ambition says, I don't care. I've got some standards. I've got some wrong and right that I believe in, and I will not break those standards to get where I want to go. I won't do it. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 8. Better to have a little with righteousness, God says, than to have much gain with injustice. It's better to have less and be a a person with moral and ethical standards you won't break than it is to have more and be a person of injustice. Proverbs 8.28, verse 6. It is better to be a poor man and have integrity than to be a rich man whose ways are perverse. And my dear friends, ambition becomes dangerous when it begins to take on a life of its own. When if we get there becomes more important than how we get there. Once if we get there becomes the most important thing, you are setting yourself up for dangerous country. Because if we get there means we'll get there any way we can. It's how we get there that matters. And there has to be moral standards and ethical standards that go around our ambition that are fences we will not climb and go over, no matter how much easier that would make life. That's godly ambition. There's another movie that's on this list of the best hundred movies, uh, rather, another movie that's not on the list of the best hundred movies. It's Tom Clancy's movie, Clear and Present Danger. Don't know if you saw it. But in this movie, it's a story about a president and an administration who who are willing to do anything, ignore all boundaries in order to get a job done. And and Jack Ryan plays a CIA official who keeps trying to get this thing to to work inside the rules, wants them to keep the rules. And one of the most tension-filled scenes in the movie is when a fellow CIA official confronts Jack Ryan and says to him, you are such a Boy Scout. You are such a Boy Scout. Because you want to keep the rules. Well, friends, may I say to you, constructive, godly ambition is always a Boy Scout. Always keeps the rules. And when we stop being Boy Scouts, when we let our ambition start breaking the rules, it's then that we plant the seeds that will always lead to our self-destruction. Always. 
Principle number two, constraint number two, is that constructive ambition has motives that are God-centered, not self-centered. Now, you know this, motive is not what we do, motive is why we do what we do. And God comments to our motives in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this, Whether we eat or whether we drink or whatever we do, do it all for the glory of God. Do it all for the glory of God. And when the reason that we're trying to achieve some goal is to see the name of God lifted up, to see the reputation of Jesus Christ advanced, to see the kingdom of God enlarged, when that's our motive, then, friends, ambition becomes purified, it becomes safe, it becomes constructive. But when we change this verse to read, do all for the glory of yourself, we are on shaky and dangerous ground. Now, I've got to tell you, this is a problem I struggle with each and every day in my life that I grapple with. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why do I want McLean Bible Church to make the kind of big impact on Washington, D.C. that I want us to make? Is it so that people all over Washington will know who Jesus Christ is? Or so is it so that people all over Washington will know who Lon Solomon is? Why am I doing what I'm doing? What's my motive? And I'm constantly asking the Lord to help keep my motives right. You say, well, but Lon, how, you know, how do you know when your motive's right? I mean, how do you test something like that? Well, I'll tell you the litmus test I use. I use the litmus test that John the Baptist used. Remember when his disciples complained to him that Jesus was getting more attention now than he was? He said this, he, Jesus, must increase and I must be willing to decrease. And you see, my friends, when our motive is right, we are happy to let the spotlight go on to God instead of us. We are happy to let the credit go to God instead of us. In fact, we don't even care who gets the credit as long as God gets the spotlight. We are happy to decrease if it means that Jesus can increase. And so one of the questions that I ask myself all the time is, Lon, if you never got any credit, if you never got any recognition, if the spotlight were never on you and nobody ever knew you had a thing to do with it, would you still be as passionate as you are about doing what it is you want to do? Would you? If the answer is yes, it's wonderful. It means my motives are right, that they're really for the glory of God. If my answer is no, then we got a problem. we got a problem. You say, but Lon, nobody can have 100% pure motives. Nobody. No human being can get there. Well, I agree. At least I haven't gotten there. But that doesn't mean that we can't aspire to this, folks. It doesn't mean that we can't deliberately sensitize ourselves to this. It doesn't mean we can't pray about this. It doesn't mean we can't ask God to make us more this way. God-centered motives are like antibiotics for ambition. They take all the toxins out of it and they make it clean and healthy and wholesome. Constraint number three, and finally, is that constructive ambition values people above progress. I want to read you something the Apostle Paul said. Philippians chapter 2, listen. Now remember, this is the ambition machine writing this, okay? Listen to what he said. Chapter uh, 2 of Philippians, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, Paul says. But in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
You see, friends, godly ambition says, if I have to roll over people, if I have to step on people, if I have to damage people in order to get where I want to go, then I just won't get there. And if God really wants me to get there, God is plenty powerful enough that He can make a way for me to get there where I don't have to step on people, damage people, and hurt people to do it. And I'll wait till God opens that door for me to get there God's way. And you know what? If God never opens that door and I don't ever get there, that's fine. But I'm not going to step on people and damage people to do it. That is a boundary I will not cross to get where I want to go. One way you can tell what kind of ambition a person has, it's simple, is just look and see how many dead bodies they've left in their wake. I mean, if there are corpses everywhere, cadavers everywhere, in the path they took to get where they are, you know whatever kind of ambition they have is not godly ambition, because godly ambition values people above progress. And if you look, Jesus got everywhere he needed to get, and he never had to damage a single person to do it. And friends, that's the mark of godly ambition. That's a constraint that will keep it healthy and, and not let it become self-destructive. Now, I don't know about you, but you've got some ambition. You go, well, I'm not sure I really have all that much. Oh, yes, you do. You live in Washington. You know, this is a sick place. And, and we're sick for living here. And, and, but we're here. And you can't survive in this town if you don't have some ambition. People, you know, if you drive 55 on the Beltway, you will die. You will die. You cannot drive 55 on the Beltway unless it's in the middle of the night. That's just the way this place is. Sure, you got some ambition or you wouldn't be in this town. The question is, what kind of ambition is it? Is it ambition that's managed? Is it ambition that's godly? Is it ambition that has the kind of restraints on it so that it's constructive rather than destructive? That's the question. How do you tell? Well, constructive ambition has certain moral and ethical standards it'll never violate, no matter how easy it might make life to do so. Number two, constructive, godly ambition has motives that are God-centered, not self-centered. And number three, constructive, godly ambition will never damage people to get where it needs to go. It won't do it. My charge to you, my challenge to you, is to go home and look at your ambition and run it through these three tests and see how it comes out. If it comes out meeting all three of these tests, wonderful. God bless you. That's great. But if it comes out that you need a course correction in some of these areas, you say, Lon, what do I do then? Well, friends, you do exactly what I do. You get on your knees and you say, God, I need you to change my heart. God... I need you to change my life. God, I need you to do a work in me because this is not the way it can be. And I hope you'll do that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, I pray this morning that you would speak to us deeply on this issue. We live in a town where ambition runs rampant, where the giants of ambition live here, and where it's very easy to lose sight of the forest for the trees and to begin believing the PR of the Beltway that getting where we need to get to, anything we have to pay is worth it. Lord Jesus, remind us this is wrong. 
This is a sure road to self-destruction. That ambition needs boundaries, moral and ethical, that, it won't, that we won't break. That ambition needs to be God-centered, not, Christ, uh, not self-centered. And that ambition needs to value people above progress. Lord, help us examine our ambition and to see whether or not we indeed can say these things are true of us. And if we find we need a course correction, God, may we fall on our faces before you and ask you and beseech you to do that. Father, change our life. Change the way we live Monday to Saturday because of what we've learned here today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.